1: and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Robin Buller. Now, I'm a historian by trade, and so I'm particularly excited to venture beyond my comfort zone today to explore work that's philosophical and theological. That new book is titled The Going, A Meditation on Jewish Law by Leon Wiener Dow, who's joining us today all the way from Jerusalem. Leon, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Thanks, Robin. Thanks for having me, and thanks to the listeners for being here.
1: Now, normally here at the New Books Network, we open up our interviews by asking the author a biographical question. And in your case, your personal history is very present in your book, which is part of what makes it so intimate and accessible. So, for our readers who haven't yet had a chance to read The Going, could you speak a little bit about yourself? Let us know where you're from and where you are now.
0: Sure. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas. Uh, And grew up there uh, until I went to college at Princeton at age seventeen, and after I guess skipping back one year at age sixteen, I had a six-week summer trip to Israel, and that was already my third or fourth time in Israel. And at that time, I decided. Uh, for reasons that maybe we'll get into later, uh, that I wanted to live in Israel. And so already from when I went to college, uh, I was somewhat focused on and geared towards getting to Israel. Uh, But I went ahead. It was somehow clear to me that I was going to do my B.A. in the States, which I did. And then a year after finishing my B.A., I came to Israel and I've been here since 1992. Uh, and I did a master's in Jewish philosophy, and then I studied for private rabbinic ordination from Rabbi David Hartman of Blessed Memory, Uh, and then eventually uh, I did a doctorate in philosophy at Bar-Ilan University, Uh, and I'm currently a research fellow at, and, and a faculty member at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. So those are that's the kind of skeleton of my biography. What I would add to that, um, which is probably more interesting uh, and more relevant uh, apropos of the book, um, is that. Uh, I think that a lot of my personal experiences, which I try to bring to the writing and to, and to the book, uh, are inseparable from my philosophical positions, and they and they uh, play off each other and converse with each other. I had the, the privilege of having a high school philosophy teacher uh, my senior year in high school who taught me Plato, and he taught me Machiavelli, but most of all, he taught me what it is to take ideas seriously, and uh, and that what it means to take philosophy seriously is to commit to living one's life in a certain way. And so I think that uh, a lot of what uh, gains expression in the book are not the kind of the skeleton biography that I just gave, which is somewhat boring, um, but, uh, but the rich, rich, rich experiences in life. Um, and those are, and, and a lot of my philosophical understandings, I, I, if I had to put myself somewhere, I'm definitely in the camp of existential philosophy. Uh, and so I find myself in a philosophical camp and in a personal camp where uh, what I think and what I experience and the reflection upon that experience, they all kind of form a very uh, messy Uh, ball of string, which is hard to untangle. And so part of what I'm after in the book, um, which is part philosophy and part theology, uh, but obviously has a strong biographical element is to uh, uh, give expression to try to be true to that. Um, And so I didn't mean to propose it, uh, or or share my experiences in a kind of uh, as a kind of spiritual biography, but rather as a work of philosophy and theology, from which I think you can't really separate autobiography.
1: Right, that makes sense. So so with that in mind then, what brought you to to write The Going?
0: So I mentioned my high school philosophy teacher, Tony Serignano, uh, and I'll add now to the mix uh, Professor Robert Gibbs, who now is at the University of Toronto at the time was at Princeton. And he introduced me uh, in a course in the department of religion, uh, he introduced me to Franz Rosenzweig. He introduced me to also to Buber and to Gabriel Marcel. Um, but Rosenzweig captivated me uh, for reasons uh, that, that you know many uh, philosophically minded 19 19- Nineteen-year-olds find themselves in, which is uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enthralled by and frightened by Nietzsche, uh, which is where I was, and I really didn't want to find myself a Nietzschean. And uh, Rosenzweig was really the thinker who gave me a philosophical way out for 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 reasons that probably aren't worth going into right now. Uh, but basically, that's when my love affair with Rosenzweig began uh, in in my junior year in college. And uh, or was it my sophomore year? In any event, uh, I spent many many of my waking hours uh, reading Rosenzweig, and I eventually did uh, my masters on Rosenzweig. And when I got to the end of that process, I basically felt like here in Israel, a master's is uh, a kind of you know multi-year endeavor, which includes a, a thesis, and usually or often lead straight into a doctorate. But I basically found myself feeling like uh, Rosenzweig had gotten stuck in philosophy. For those who know the biography of Rosenzweig, uh, he has a very, very interesting and relevant biography, which I won't go too much into now. But I'll just say that he spent the last number of years of his life paralyzed in in bed because he had ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, what's known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And... Uh, and he he wrote uh, after he wrote his major work, The Star of Redemption, which no one understood, and and I think probably lots of people, including me, still don't understand it fully, uh, even 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 having written a book on it. Uh, and um, so when when no one understood the star, his publisher asked him to write uh, something which would make it more accessible. So he wrote a book which was. Uh, which he which he did not publish during his lifetime. His student Nahum Glatzer, published it uh, uh, posthumously, and it was a book called uh, a little a little book on common understanding or the sick health the, the sick uh, sick and sick understanding and, and healthy understanding. That's the way it's translated from the German, and uh, and in it he tells the story of someone who is paralyzed by philosophy, by philosophical thinking. And Rosenzweig's thinking, uh, which, he, which he called the new thinking, comes and helps this uh, patient exit his situation of paralysis. So a month after, a month after Rosenzweig put aside that manuscript, uh, he discovered his first signs of paralysis. Now, I'm not someone who tends to be mystically inclined, but I basically my kind of reading of Rosenzweig and Rosenzweig's philosophy and Rosenzweig's life is that he didn't really succeed uh, as a person and as a philosopher from uh, extricating himself from the grasp of philosophy. And so he, he, he really was literally paralyzed. So so. Uh, I basically decided that's enough of Rosenzweig, uh, even though he has, even though those who know the Star of Redemption uh, even minimally know that the, that the first words of the book are out of death, out of fear of death, begins all philosophy. And the last words of the book are into life. Uh, and so even though Rosenzweig's uh, desired trajectory was, uh, was to go into life, I kind of felt like he never made it there. And so I hung up my boots after a master's and thought, okay, that's enough. Uh, and then what happened is that there was this bug in my head. Uh, Rosenzweig, once he was already paralyzed and, and his death was near, uh, he died at the age of 43. Um, he he wrote in one of his letters that uh, when he finished the Star of Redemption and he thought he had decades to live, he thought that he would uh, spend a long time studying Talmud and Jewish philosophy and maybe at the end of his days write a book on halakha on Jewish law and and I never could get out of my head for years literally for years I couldn't get out of my head the question what would it have looked like if he had gotten to it what would a Rosenzweigian approach to halakha look like and Essentially, what happened is, even though I wanted to leave Rosenzweig behind, he wouldn't let go, uh, and so I went back and did a doctorate in philosophy. But my doctorate was, which which was later published as a book in Hebrew called *Vleich um It was an attempt to construct an approach to halacha based on Rosenzweig's thought. So it was it was the genre of uh, an academic work, which means heavily laden with footnotes and very conservative in terms of the kind of claims that I was making. Um, but basically, I was arguing that there's enough there to kind of construct what an approach to halakha based on Rosenzweig's thought would be. Now, all of that, I haven't forgotten what your question is. All of that is to say, I've I've been interested, I've been interested in, obviously, my, my interest in an approach to halakha based on Rosenzweig's thought is... Is, is very much a product of my interest in Rosenzweig's thought and my interest in halakha and my belief that he has a serious contribution to make to the world of halakha. But uh, at some point, the time came for, uh, for me to put Rosenzweig aside and speak my own voice and not speak my voice as a scholar uh, by piecing together uh, arguments. And that's really what brought me to the going. What I wanted to do was to articulate what I think the halakha is about uh, and to do so in a way which would be accessible, meaning I, I, I hope that uh, someone would would not then, after reading the going, feel like they need some other book uh, or essay uh, to explain what I'm trying to say. Uh, and I, I the first draft of the manuscript I wrote uh, what was for me tying my hands behind my back by uh, pr- by forbidding myself from writing a single footnote. So I actually wrote the whole first version of the manuscript without any footnotes. I, I was wedded to making sure that this was not going to be uh, a work of scholarship. It was going to be a work of Jewish thought. And so therefore, I wanted every piece of every piece of relevant uh, information or every relevant or compelling or significant statement to be in the body of the text so um so that's the way i wrote it eventually once once it was accepted as a manuscript for publication and 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 they sent it to outside once I heard back from the outside readers, uh, the strong recommendation was in order to kind of give the readership some sense of, of the sources from which I was drawing, I should add footnotes. So I did that. Um, but those were all very much um, not just an afterthought, but even maybe a, 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 contra, a contra to the original uh, spirit of the work. So that, that's, that's what I was after in the work. Whether I succeed in doing it, that's uh, that's for the reader to
1: tell. No, I think it's really interesting to hear about your writing process. In that sense, because I definitely felt like it had a certain flow to it that um, more traditional scholarly works don't um, don't necessarily have. So that's that's interesting to hear about. I wonder if um, just because we have such a diversity of listeners, if you might expand a little bit on halakha and you know what it is, but also maybe. Tell us more about how exactly it fits into your um, into your work.
0: If you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll amend the question slightly and, and, and say how it how it fits into my life rather than my work. Um, so, um, so halacha is Jewish law. Uh, most narrowly defined, but 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 uh, and there are scholars of halakha and sometimes in some of my waking moments, I I play that role and write scholarly work on halakha. Scholars of halacha um, often try to compare it to other legal systems and extrapolate legal principles and 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 show how it's a legal system. But obviously, halakha is uh, is uh, is an expansive and demanding uh, uh, phenomenon, which which is, is, even to call it a legal system, is somewhat reductive. Uh, so what I try to do in the book is to give expression to my deepest understanding of halakha. And my deepest understanding of halakha is that it does, it it's, it's born of, a, of an impulse to respond to the presence of the divine uh, in the life of the individual and in the life of the community. Uh, and, and let me unpack that statement um, As a Jew and as a scholar, I spend a lot of my time Talking and reading and writing and dealing in the word realm of words uh, and as a person uh, I, What I can say is that words do not exhaust living or life or the world or the universe um, and uh, I, I kind of feel about the world, uh, about the, um, the world of words. The way Rosenzweig said about rationality at the beginning of the Star, he said it's it's in and it's entitled to its place in the home, but the world is just that—a home. Rationality is not totality. That is to say, there's there's there are parts of the world which are rational, and there are a lot that aren't. And there's parts of our experience which can be expressed in and through words in verb and verbal expression and there's a lot that can't so um, and 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 you might even say that maybe what's most essential can't be expressed in words i would say that a lot of times the greatness of an author is the author's ability to use language in a way that the words point at some experience or some aspect of existence which, which language, at least in its regular form, can't, in its regular uh, prose, can't adequately capture. Um, and, so, uh, and so what I think that halacha is really about is an attempt to express through deed, through our actions, Uh, that which cannot be expressed in language. What what remains the most fundamental human experience beyond language is the realm of action. And what the halakha does is to bring the realm of theology and the realm of action together. That is to say, the two realms where words don't suffice, uh, it brings together. There is the realm of theology where no matter what we can say about the divine, it will never be adequate. It will never be exhausted. And, uh, and, and, so, and so the halakha gives that expression of theology through deed. Uh, that is to say, we don't express God, we respond to God. Uh, and, the, and the other thing that it does is it links the individual and the community. Uh, and that is also, and this is an argument that I make, is, well, community, I, I argue, is constituted through deed, not through shared word, not through shared credo and not through shared uh, um, belief, but through shared deed. That is what constitutes community. And so what the halakha does is weave together those areas of the ineffable. Uh, which and 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 brings them together in in a in a very rich and complicated fabric. That's what I think the halakha is after. Now, uh, now the the important thing here, and this is what I'm trying to do in the book, uh, is that a lot of people I think can live their lives within the realm of halakha and be thoughtful Jews and be pious Jews and be observant and religious. Uh, Jews, uh, but not necessarily uh, understand or conceptualize halakha in that way. I, I think that's what the halakha is doing. I make an argument um, for how to understand what actually the halakha is doing uh, and what its ethos and telos are. Uh, but but that doesn't mean that everyone who's living halakhically uh, walks around with an awareness or, or understanding that that's, what, that that's what they or the halakha broadly, broadly understood is doing. So I try to offer in the going conceptualization of the halakha, which will actually uh, be insightful to someone who is well, who might be very well versed in the halakha, and at the same time, uh, I try to I try to articulate it in a way so that someone who has no idea what even the the most basic demands of a halachic, a religiously observant, Jewishly religiously observant life are, can understand uh, what I will call the phenomenon of halakha, of halacha that, that, uh, that, that strange thing, which, you know, if you look upon from the outside seems to make no sense.
1: Great. And as I've mentioned before, your book does such a good job of bringing, um, these weighty concepts, um, into a personal context. I wonder if you could, um, Expand a little bit more on what you mean about the relationship between you know the individual and the community expressed expressed through deed by bringing us into into your own personal experience with that.
0: Um, sure. So, I, I, you know, I'll maybe begin by by telling the um, one of the same first incidents that I mentioned in the in the book, which is that I think I grew up in a, the home of uh, my parents' home was a uh, nominally conservative home in Houston, Texas. And I say nominally conservative because my parents, as most conservative Jews, were not and and to this day are not committed to a life of halakha as the conservative movement theoretically is. Um, But they were simply more observant than those who called themselves Reform Jews. So it was really of a sociological marker rather than a theological or philosophical commitment. So I grew up in that home and went to a Jewish day school. And I remember in about third grade, uh, learning about the, at least what was presented to us as the ethos of Kashrut of separating, um, um, dairy and and meat. And I found it very compelling. And then I immediately, uh, felt like, well, so why are we not doing that at home? Uh, and, uh, so I came home to my parents, uh, and I said, I want to start keeping kosher. And, And my parents, uh, bless their souls had much more patience for me than I do for my children. And, uh, and so they said, okay, okay, Leon, tell us what you want us to do. And, 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 uh, so, I mean, based on the very little that I knew, uh, I said, okay, well, let's, I want to start separating from milk, milk from meat. So I don't care what y'all do in the kitchen. Um, but I want to have a separate meat plate and a separate milk plate. So that, so that's what happened. The kitchen was not at all kosher. I, the meat was not kosher, the pots and pans weren't kosher, but, uh, I had two separate plates, now, um, uh, and I myself did not mix milk, dairy, or, or meat products. Now, I say that because in a lot of ways that story um, encapsulates uh, a lot of the different things that happen in the realm of halachic observance. What does that mean? It means, first of all, uh, I hear an idea, or I hear, I mean, certainly I don't think it, in third grade I thought of it as... Uh, Um, I I certainly didn't understand it in any kind of deep religious sense. I wasn't thinking of the world of mitzvot or calling or anything like that. Um, But I understood something, and I understood that uh, I wanted to and needed to, I felt obligated to, I might even say, um, play that out in my life. Uh, And and that thing that I understood— uh, were was the demand of the community or the nomos or the norm of the community so what i wanted to act out um, or negotiate was the tension between um, my personal what I would now call sense of calling or hearing or authenticity uh, and the demand of the community and I had to, and I had to And what mediated that and what made that complicated and what always makes it more complicated is reality. The reality was I I was in third grade and these were my parents and this was their kitchen. Uh, And so I also had to find some way uh, to give instantiation to uh, whatever that uh, negotiated resolve I had was between my individuality and the demands of the community within uh, a, a, a reality which which was not which was limited, uh, and and in a certain sense, I would say, um, Buber said uh, that the demand of the political is quantum status. That is to say, to give as much expression to one's moral commitments as possible within the this worldly political realm and I would say in a certain sense that's kind of the general attempt at the, uh, of the halakha is to be, is to have very, very high aspirations about how to allow the individual a sense of authenticity Uh, And how to give expression to communal norm, but it's always always done with a very very realistic sense of okay Well, this is reality now. What do we do? Um, So I I think in a lot of ways. That's what uh, that little story uh, uh, Is emblematic of a lot of the negotiations that happen all the time within the halakha There's the individual and the individuals pool and the individuals understanding of what the Torah what the what the what the um, Uh, The corpus, uh, what the Jewish canon is demanding, Uh, there is somewhere behind or inside those verses coming from within the canon, uh, a divine voice speaking forth. There is the individual hearing that voice. Uh, There's the community that's instantiated its understanding into some communal uh, norm, which is obligatory. And then there's reality. There's the home that you're living in. There's the circumstances that are going to allow you to uh, express the that that negotiation between the individual and the community uh, as best as you can. That is that helpful?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, and I I agree with you when you use the term sort of tension between these two things. And I think that there are quite a few tensions that you that uh, you highlight throughout. The book. And another one that I noticed was the tension between ritual and sort of progress, you know, the sort of um, more traditional uh, view of certain expectations and sort of like what you just mentioned, the um, more progressive, changing reality. Um, and you have a few stories that illustrate that. I wonder if if that's something that you would like to speak about.
0: Uh, sure. I You know, I would say that um, I would quote here um, one of my uh, favorite, uh, well, certainly my favorite living political philosopher, Michael Walzer. Uh, and in a book, I think if I'm remembering correctly, uh, in, in, a, in a little thin book of his called Interpretation and Social Criticism, uh, he writes that uh, moral progress consists less of the discovery of new principles than it does of the application of existing principles to new circumstances. That is to say, I I, I think what he's saying there, at least as I understand it, is is that there's not moral progress in sense of wow, we've discovered this idea of equality. It's that suddenly what was previously unimaginable, which is that uh, African Americans, people of color, are uh, should 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 be legitimate recipients of that principle of full equality is now is now conceivable and 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 what was and and that that happened let's say in the United States in the 60s it's it's still happening uh, there's still a lot of work to be done to be sure uh, but but at some point it becomes not just conceivable it becomes an accepted norm which which no longer uh, even merits. Uh, thought or second thought. Uh, the same can be say, said about uh, issues of equality uh, in, in the LGBT or, or, uh, or different understandings, understandings of gender, things which we, we didn't think of before. Um, Now, suddenly we think, oh, yes, that applies, too. Uh, And we call that progress. But I think that what Walzer does correctly is say that's not progress in the sense of something new has been born. It's that suddenly we understand that this uh, that, that we were that we were limited in our in our vision and our understanding. So I'm saying that by way of introduction, which is to say that I think that a lot of what happens. Um, if, if 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 I understood um, your question correctly, so so at least associatively, what it made me think of immediately was the question of uh, of of gender equality or gender inequality in the room in the realm of uh, Jewish law, uh, and that
1: that's also what I was thinking of. Yeah, yes.
0: and, and that's an area in which basically um, I I simply can't, uh, and I and I tell the story uh, in 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 the book in the first chapter i tell i tell i think it's in the first chapter I, I tell a story um of uh sitting next to my grandmother in uh at the at my parents conservative synagogue and in 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 one of the uh um the traditional service there which did not allow that it allowed men and women to sit together but women were not allowed to lead any parts of the service. And, and he, and, and the, uh, the person coordinating the service came over and leaned over my grandmother, who was my elder, obviously, also much more observant Jewishly and much more knowledgeable Jewishly than I was, and asked me to do something. And And my sense of effront, uh was tremendous. It was just, it was overwhelming. And I remember uh, asking my parents later uh, I was trying to integrate it all and figure out what I was supposed to do with that. And I remember asking my parents later. I said, uh, "My parents both grew up in the segregated South in Houston, Texas." And I said, "I, I just want to understand. You know, when when there was a separate water fountain for for whites and for you know what they then called colored people, what was um, how what was how, how did you live with that?" And and my parents, who were who were thoughtful, sensitive people, looked at me and basically said. We didn't think of it, meaning it just wasn't even – that was our reality. And, um, and, that was, and that was eye-opening, instructive, and painful for me. That's to say it was eye-opening in the sense of I thought, wow, here are people that I respect who I consider sensitive human beings. And they basically were blind to a horrible, horrible injustice. And they were blind to it for exactly the reason that I said at the beginning of my answer, which is that they couldn't imagine that this principle of equality – also applied to this group of people, uh, and uh, and and therefore they could live there a, a good chunk of their lives. I would basically say in sin or complicit in 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 an act uh, of oppression. Uh, and 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 I understood. So so that was that was the the first thing that I thought. And the, and the second thing that I thought was um, was it became clear to me that that human beings. Uh, that we evolve over over time, and I thought, and I thought to myself, um, and this was I, at the time. I mean, now I have, I mean, for the past, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't. I have four daughters and a son, um, and uh, and and I thought to myself, this is obviously before I was married, before I had children. I thought I don't want my children, my daughters, um, to look back at me and say, um, "How did you live with this?" Uh, gender uh, uh, inequality with the oppression of women? Uh, how did you allow the person to include you but exclude your grandmother or any other woman? And it became very clear to me, and it wasn't the kind of, how should I say it, it wasn't the calculated, uh, rational decision. It was, I would say, a visceral, deep knowing that I simply could not live my life that way. And so, what I would say is, I think that there's a way in which um, uh that kind of knowledge becomes a part of uh, established, uh, it becomes a, a deep, obviously deeply ingrained sense of human experience. And, and it has to, it cannot avoid working its way into the halachic system most broadly conceived. And that is because if enough Jews act a certain way, the halacha can't ignore them. So uh, um, and 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 if enough halachically observant, religiously observant Jews act a certain way, it becomes even more difficult for the halacha to ignore them. Uh, Halachic authorities won't be able to avoid them, uh, and and they constitute the very community which then uh, observes and expresses its life through the halacha. Um, and so, my sense was, I have to live my life out in a way that is, um, that gives full and authentic expression to uh, certain deep, deeply held beliefs and understandings of what it is to live justly. Uh, and and I, can't, I simply cannot imagine, I cannot imagine an area of my life in which uh, I am privileged simply because I'm a man to do certain things that a woman cannot do. And if someone tells me, and I and and I've been through enough discussions with halachic authorities uh, and 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 uh, and and scholars of halacha to understand the different halachic categories that are at stake, uh, but but the bottom line is, I simply cannot imagine that God wants me to live my life that way, and so um, so that will have to. Um, for me as an individual, but then ultimately for the halakhic community as a whole, that kind of experience will have to work its way into uh, the realm of halacha. And I think, and I think, by the way, um, I think that that's what's happening, certainly on the liberal edges of the observant, even Orthodox community. I think that you see here in Jerusalem, you certainly see in the United States, uh, liberal Orthodox communities uh, that are reconceiving their understanding of the role of women, uh, and I think that the same, uh, and I think that the same will happen on the issues. It's happening to some degree, but I think it will get, it'll happen to a much larger degree uh, with issues of LGBT uh, and all, and, and all of those things because the, because the halakha is. Uh, it is it, it is the, the lived communal life, and so if people are living them living in a certain way, then the Hanacha is going to have to be uh, responsive to and inclusive of those forms of life and living.
1: Great. Now you you started to go in this direction, so I'm just going to sort of jump to this question. Um, you talked about uh, your relationship to to other individuals, to community, to Jewish law and your book also talks about um, how your relationship with the divine has sort of developed over the course of this journey. I wonder if you could um, talk about that with us.
0: Um, yes. The answer is I will try because you asked me to, but it's very difficult to do. <laughs> um, one, of, one, one of my, one of my favorite uh, Quotes that I remember from my uh, class that I that I alluded to earlier with Professor Robert Gibbs was uh, was that uh, French Catholic theologian Gabriel Marcel says uh, when we speak of God it's not of God we speak uh, and I and so I think that in a lot of ways a Rosenzweig says it differently he says modesty has to uh, has to um, characterize or veil this aloneness together I think that there's I'll, I'll try to do it, but what I'll say is my main qualifier will be not that the person that, that the listener should go and read the fourth chapter of my book where I deal with theology, but my main qualifier qualifier would be um, that uh, that really what the halakha is about is an attempt to express that which I won't ever be able to express in words. So I'll try to answer your question in words, but really, if, I, if you wanted to know the best answer, so come and look at my lived life. That is to say, if you were to look at the way I conduct myself in the kitchen, or an interaction when I go and fill up the car with gas, or at a work meeting, or with my children, or with my spouse, um, that's going. A, so, in so far as uh, I try to orient myself and live a life inspired by and and ruled by and led by and informed by the halakha, so that would be the best answer to your question, but. Um, neither you nor the podcast listeners can do that, so I'll try to answer your question. Um, I, I, um, so what I can say is that uh, I, I it's it's very, very I grew up in um in a very, very rational um, atmosphere, uh, both in my home and I would say in the larger milieu in which i in which I was brought up, even though I was brought up in Houston, Texas. Um, which where there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, deeply observant uh, religious, especially Christians, um, the immediate movement in which I grew up tended to be very, very hyper-intellectual. Uh, and hyper-intellectual almost always meant uh, dismissive of belief in God. And I think that a lot of my struggle uh, as, as, as a boy, maybe as a young man, and, and to some degree even still today, um, is to, uh, is to uh, blot out voices, not blot out, perhaps uh, deal with, or quiet voices in my head, um, which are dismissive of, or skeptical of uh, any experience other than that, which is uh, established and establishable um, by fact and by argumentation and by experimentation and so forth, um, I, I, I can say that uh, I think that there uh, uh, there have been obviously you know Jewish theologians and non Jewish theologians have have tried in lots of different ways um, to to express that which is to to give some kind of understanding of or expression of um, that which is. Uh, often called God. Uh, what I can say is that I don't like the term God. Um, I prefer the term the divine. Um, and uh, I'll just say something about what you gain by using that term and what you lose by losing that term. Or I should say I instead of you. Um, so what I, what I gain by using the term the divine is that um we we avoid. I avoid, and whoever's listening to me, I think avoids falling into the trap of thinking of the divine as this kind of um, noun. I mean, divine is an adjective. I'm calling it the divine, but but it's divine and 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 not God, which is which is. I mean, we immediately, I think, at least I do, and I think a lot of people already, in, in ineluctably, have all kinds of images of something approaching, you know, a giant person, uh, um, and of course. Yohanan a scholar of, of, of the Hebrew Bible, argues that's what the greatness of the Bible is that it is that it is that it uh, is the personality of God, and and that might be true, but there's also a cost you pay, and so, um, and so I don't want to pay that cost, and so I tend to speak of and think of the divine, um, but I add the but I add the article the definite article V the, because there is some sense of presence there, um, so so part of what I try to do. Uh, in 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 the book is to give what you know as a philosopher I would call a phenomenology of the command, uh, which is to try to express in words my experience of uh, being commanded. That's that's the closest that I could probably say um, that I come to describing the divine um, in in the book, or that I'll try to do here, um, and. Um and and I think that um, Buber and the opening to I and Val, so he he talks about three areas or three spheres in which I and Val takes place. And um, and I don't have the book in front of me, so I'll have to paraphrase. but he says in the third realm, the realm of the spirits or spiritual beings, um, we hear a calling even though, uh, we are not called by name, uh, and 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 it doesn't. And and here again, we're at the limits of language. What I would say is, um, I think that when, as a as a Jew, I say a bracha, a blessing, and I say uh blessed are you, or buchaat, blessed are you. If I say address the divine and the feminine, um, then what I'm trying to do is. Um, Bring that which is diffuse uh, and and maybe in my peripheral line of vision, which is the divine, and, and to bring it straight in front of me, to bring it into my direct line of vision. Uh, And to bring it into my full awareness and consciousness. I think that in a lot of ways, if I go back to Rosenzweig, in a lot of ways, in in the same way that so much of what we do in life is animated by a kind of unarticulated and not fully understood fear of death. uh, I think that there are lots of hints of the divine in our life uh, and that we are often responding to calls, uh, but we haven't fully articulated them or allowed them to be articulated to us. Uh, that requires uh, that requires a kind of it's in a certain sense. Um, some people have an ability to hear keys and tones. I had a, a flute teacher who was able to hear tones that I simply could not hear. Um, but but that being said, I think that there that we have um, an awareness. Kierkegaard talks about um, um, belief being something that we have access to. Um, we have in our potential, and I think that we have. Many of us, most of us have an ability to hear things that we're, that we often live much of our lives, uh, tuning out because of all of the, uh, white noise that's in our lives.
1: Thank you for, um, for answering that question. I know, I know that it's difficult to express something using language when, you know, throughout your book, you, uh, you talk about how that relationship is sort of, you know, above, above language or expressed that way. So thank you. Um, I, before we, before we, uh, say goodbye, I want to know if there's anything else that you would like your, the listeners to, to know about your book before they, they go off and buy it and read it on their own.
0: Yeah. So I, I think that maybe I would point out, um, one thing, which I say at the very end of the first chapter, I, I had the privilege of learning from, uh, uh, and receiving rabbinic ordination from Rabbi David Hartman of blessed memory, who is, who is a prodigious figure uh, in in modern Jewish thought and life. Uh, but he never wrote any he, – he did not consider himself uh, a decisor of halacha. He, he never wrote any halachic positions or opinions. And I remember once having a conversation with him after a certain halachic seminar in which he um, – a seminar on halakha, and it was the seminar was on women on and halacha. And one of the um, women in the seminar gave this very, very uh, compelling and learned presentation uh, of uh, a certain phrase and and why that uh, why a certain phrase, which was which was articulating a certain value, um, should lead to greater equality for women in the in the traditional world and a, tradition, a, a world of traditional Jewish observance. And I saw Rabbi Hartman throughout the seminar. He was at the, literally on the edge of a seat and you could see how annoyed he was getting. And when she finally finished the seminar, uh, he, he, he barely contained himself from interrupting her and, 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 and saying some words of overture. of Thank you. And, and And then he said, but you know what you really need to do? You need to stop looking for some kind of justification within from within the tradition, and you just need to live your life as a as a committed halachically observant Jewish woman. And you'll see that the rabbis will, um, they will fall, uh, they'll follow suit, they'll, they'll follow your lead, meaning if you as a committed Jewish uh, uh, as a committed Jew, live a certain halachic life, and and it's not because you're ignoring the halacha, but you're committed to it that you do something. Um, then halachic authorities, by 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 the nature of, of their job, won't be able to ignore you. Uh, and um, so I remember after that seminar, I went to Rabbi Hartman and I said, you know, I think that what you're articulating is um, very radical from within the concept, uh, the the context of a traditional halacha. Uh, of people who would go to a rabbi and say, please give me the the established halachic position or answer to my question. Uh, And I think that what he was articulating then was uh, the need of an enormous number of thoughtful uh, people who are committed to a life of uh, rigorous uh, religious halachic observance, but who are also committed in a thoroughgoing way, an a compromising way, to issues of personal integrity into a, an evolving, or what you call progressive, understanding of uh, the dictates of the divine in our life. And I said to Rabbi Hartman, I think that um, that, that that's requires a new kind of literature. The classic halachic literature is called in Hebrew, which are questions and answers, and, 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 and someone less Conversant in Jewish law goes to a halachic authority and asks that authority a question, and the authority gives an answer. This is what the halacha says. This is how you ought to observe your life or live out this certain aspect of your life. And I said, I think that what you're thinking of is, is or, or what you're leading to is a new kind of halachic literature. So, what I consider the going um, is a prolegomena of that kind of literature. That is to say, I try to articulate this kind of halacha. Uh, this understanding of halakha in a way which I hope will spawn uh, future writings and future responses and future uh, uh, expressions of the halakha, uh which which uh, which manage that tension which I just which I just described uh, in 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 that interaction with Rabbi Hartman.
1: Wonderful, thank you, um, Leon. We've taken up a lot of your time, but. Uh, I really want to know what you're going to be working on next.
0: Um, So um, what I'm working on next, and I give a hint at it in in the book, um, is trying to work on, I won't say a Jewish theology, but some Jewish theology, Um, which has much more feminist overtones. I think that there is a way in which, um, the theology that I articulate in the going is very much as a theology of command. Um, there's a way in which it's not that, it's not that feminists can't or being feminist, uh, does not go hand in hand with making demands or making commands. Um, but, 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 um, I think that there's a way in which, uh, at least, Stereotypically speaking, archetypally speaking, um, there's a kind of very m- male or gendered sense of theology that's at stake in a theology of halakha. And so, what I'm working at, and it's taking me a while because it's uh, difficult to do, <laughs> at least for me, uh, is to work on a piece. And it will probably it will probably be um, Meditation, not dissimilar to the going, uh, where I try to bring different voices and different texts to play, uh, which are giving expression of Jewish theology, which will be of a more feminist tenor, which which won't necessarily the the, the connection between them and halachic observance will not at all be readily apparent. So that's that's what's keeping me. Uh, busy these days.
1: That sounds absolutely fascinating. I I really look forward to reading that. Thanks,
0: Robin. Thank you very much.
1: Leon, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a really wonderful discussion.
0: Thanks, Robin. Thank you very, very much for having me. And thanks to the listeners as well.